Uh, So if you found your place in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we are going to read the entirety of the chapter at the beginning of the service. And so if you found your place there, would you stand for the honor of reading God's word together? We do this um, not just so you can get your exercise today, but uh, we do this because we are acknowledging that this is God's word. When we read the Bible, it is as if God is speaking directly to us because it is his word to his people. And when the king speaks, we stand in reverence and honor of his word. So we're going to read this together from Second Samuel chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Now David said, is there still anyone who's left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, at your service. Then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Makar, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Makar and the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, He is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Gracious Father, we are a needy people. This morning, we gather in all of our weakness, confident in your strength. We gather with our hunger, knowing that you alone can satisfy. We gather knowing our lowly estate, but trusting the God who is able to raise us from the ash heap to make us sit among princes, to make us inherit seats of honor. So Father, we once again throw ourselves upon your mercy and plead for your grace, knowing that you are quick to give far more abundantly than all we even think to ask for. Meet with your people as the word is preached, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, the wisest men 
the wisest man, excuse me, who ever lived, once said this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. What many do not know is that this wise man who spoke these wise words was influenced by First and Second Samuel. He grew up hearing these stories like the one I just read a moment ago. He was familiar with the history of Israel's great king, the shepherd of sheep turned shepherd of Israel, King David. Many do not realize that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is actually one of the major themes that runs through First and Second Samuel. First Samuel, as you recall, opens with a woman who was poor in spirit. In the Old Testament lingo, spiritual poverty is communicated often through physical barrenness. First Samuel opens with none other than Hannah, barren and persecuted. Mourning before her Lord with supplications to reverse her shame. God heard her plea and comforted her by bringing life to her barren womb. The wise man who spoke these wise words knew Hannah's story and understood the point of that story. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This wise man knew that First and Second Samuel are about God's steadfast love for all the Hannahs. All those who know the poverty of their own spirit and long for the righteousness of their God. The wise man who spoke these wise words also knew that the kingdom of Israel in those days was governed by violent and corrupt men in the days of Hannah. Men who exalted themselves and despised their Lord, unlike Hannah, they denied their poverty and glorified, gloried in their shame. Their God was their belly and their end was destruction. Such was the house of Eli as we know the story. The house of Eli had that insurpassable privilege of eating at the king's table every single day. But because they refused to see their spiritual poverty, Eli and his sons were disinherited. Being cut off from their seat of honor while Hannah was raised up from the dust. Hannah was raised up from the dust and made to inherit the seat of honor. These two stories, they, they serve as a prelude to the rest of the book of Samuel. This theme of, of the blessing of the poor in spirit and the curse of the self-exalted runs through the rest of First and Second Samuel. And the, the wise man who spoke these wise words knew the story of David's loving kindness to Mephibosheth as we see it in Second Samuel 9. And also how it provided another illustration of that central theme that runs through these two books. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Friends, what a timely reminder for us this morning. We live in a godless society today that encourages us to glory in our shame. Yet our passage today reminds us of what Brother Johnny read from Hannah's story in 1 Samuel 2, 3. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. We all fall short of the glory of God, spiritually bankrupt with a hunger we cannot satisfy. 
So, let's dig into 2 Samuel 9 and hear how the Lord addresses us in our poverty. Let's hear the words of life and learn that it is not the exalted, but the lowly who will sit at the king's table and be satisfied. The big idea of this passage might, in fact, be framed this way. The Lord raises the poor to make them sit with princes. The Lord raises the poor to make them sit with princes. Princes, not princess, sorry. Rolls off the tongue. Uh, I want to encourage you, if you're a note taker, please don't get mad at me today. Um, because uh, the first point we're kind of going to run through and it's got a lot of subpoints. So in your bulletin, I, le- I-, I filled in the blank for you. And so if you like to write down your notes, make sure you grab a bulletin so you don't miss anything. Because we're going to kind of run through this first part a little bit quickly. That's exactly what happens to Mephibosheth, by the way. He was raised, he was poor, he was raised and made to sit with princes. Raised from poverty to sit at the king's table, the sons of David. So first I want us to examine Mephibosheth in his spiritual poverty. I want you to write down Mephibosheth, by the way, because I had to write that name 30 times this week. It typed it out and uh, spelled it 30 different ways. So uh, try your best. Mephibosheth, uh, first in his spiritual poverty. If you look quickly through the text, you just really survey that there are several things that, that make this point. That Mephibosheth is in spiritual poverty. I'm only going to draw attention to a couple of obvious ones here very quickly. First, Mephibosheth is in exile. We know that's never a good thing in the Old Testament biblical context, right? The land of Lodabar is outside of the promised land. A, Benjamin, a Benjaminite has been driven from the inheritance among his tribe. We can refer to this as exile. And just like barrenness, fleeing from your inheritance, it depicts a lowly state. It's associated with the curse of God in the Old Testament. And it symbolizes a state of spiritual poverty. So the first hint we see that Mephibosheth is in spiritual poverty is that he's in exile. Second, we must note that Mephibosheth is an enemy of David. Mephibosheth is an enemy of David, at least on paper he is. Remember, Mephibosheth on paper has right to the throne. On the horizontal plane, in the eyes of men, Mephibosheth would be considered an enemy. That's why, by the way, he is out hiding on the east side of the Jordan. It's why his nurse took him up at the ripe age of five and fled after the fall of Saul back in chapter 4 verse 4. So Mephibosheth is not only in exile depicting his spiritual poverty, but he's also an enemy of David. Third, Mephibosheth actually acknowledges his own spiritual poverty in the text. Did you note that? Mephibosheth acknowledges that he is spiritually impoverished. Look at 2 Samuel 9 verse 8. He says, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Now, interestingly enough, he actually sounds a lot like David in the way he communicated with Saul in 1 Samuel 24, 14. These are David's words to Saul after he spares Saul's life. Remember, he sees Saul in the cave. He has opportunity to take his life, but he does not touch the Lord's anointed in any way, shape, or form. So he comes out of the cave just where Saul had been, and he says this in 1 Samuel 24, verse 14. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? 
Now it's the great grandson of Saul who says these very words to David. And both of these instances reflect the humility and the self-abasement of the one speaking, which is indicative of spiritual poverty. Fourth and finally, we see Mephibosheth's spiritual poverty, not only that he's in exile or that he's an enemy of David, that he acknowledges his own spiritual poverty, but finally, Mephibosheth's poverty of spirit has a physical presentation, doesn't it? In this chapter, we see that clearly. This is most important. The Bible tells us he is lame in his feet in verse 3, or he is lame in both his feet, verse 13. Notice how this actually brackets the speech about Mephibosheth. The first thing we learn about Mephibosheth is that he's crippled in his feet. And the last thing we hear about Mephibosheth is that he's lame in both his feet. The author wants to make sure we don't miss that. Why? Well, in in order really to understand the importance of this, we got to securely fasten in our Old Testament lenses. In our culture, we of course don't see disabilities to being related as spiritual realities. And and, and let me be clear, I'm not disparaging any attempt to promote a right attitude and joyful spirit that flows from a humble confidence in God's sovereign use of all things for his glory and our good. After all, it it makes us remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 9 to his disciples, doesn't it? Where he says, Rabbi, the disciples say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. But that's exactly the point. See, in that context, in John 9, that was the assumed reality. Here is brokenness. How? Who has sinned, Lord, that this man would be blind? Who is responsible for this? And in that time, the assumption was that a physical disability was actually a sign of a spiritual malady. This was the worldview of the disciples in the first century. And it was a biblical worldview too. Notice it's interesting in John 9 that Jesus doesn't teach his disciples that blindness has nothing to do with sin. But he did teach them that physical disabilities aren't normally the consequence of a specific person's sin. But Jesus didn't go on to say that this is completely unrelated to a spiritual reality. Friends, all brokenness, mental, physical, and otherwise, is a reminder that all of creation is marred by sin under the curse of holy God. I mean, after all, isn't that why when we go to funerals, one of the things we like to focus on for those who are physically or mentally disabled or had any kind of hurt whatsoever is they are no longer in pain? That they're no longer hurting anymore? Why? Because those things are a physical reminder of the brokenness of this world. And and so it was clearly seen in the Old Testament. See, we don't think like that because we've actually adopted a naturalistic, materialistic worldview that puts the spiritual over here in this one category. But, But the Bible actually doesn't allow us to do that. The Bible actually says physical disability, spiritual malady. That's what it says. Not the direct cause of sin necessarily. So don't go stubbing your toe or breaking your arm and thinking, well, what did I do to sin in order this? But it's a constant reminder that our rebellion against a holy and just God has consequences in this world. The world state of sin and rejection is what we're currently living in. 
Mephibosheth's lame feet, they're mentioned because the hearer in this context would have naturally seen his crippled feet as indicative of a spiritual problem. The spiritual reality is Mephibosheth, like Israel, is spiritually estranged from God. Think of it physically for a moment. He is unable to be able to draw near to God. He's not only exiled, not only an enemy of the king of Israel, Mephibosheth was lame in both of his feet. He was unable to even pick himself up and be able to walk to Jerusalem even if he wanted to. It's not merely coincidence, by the way, that this son of Saul is lame in his feet. Any more than it was a coincidence that Eli, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, was blind. Remember the beginning of 1 Samuel, Eli had physical blindness, but that physical blindness was indicative of a spiritual blindness. He didn't know true spirituality when it was staring him directly in the face. When Hannah was crying out to her God, he couldn't see the consequence of overlooking the sin of his sons as they dishonored the Lord in his own house. So Eli was spiritually blind, and so Mephibosheth here is depicted As a man, again, poor in spirit, spiritually impoverished. But in our passage, and this is the point, blessed is the poor in spirit, for he inherits the kingdom of heaven. See, his exile is brought to an end in 2 Samuel 9. He returns to the promised land. Once far off, Mephibosheth, the second thing we see now is he is brought near And oh, how that's good news for those of us who see through spiritual lenses. Mephibosheth is brought near. Even to the very city of David. The very city of God where the Lord has caused his name to dwell. His inheritance is restored. He inherits his father's entire estate. Mephibosheth receives it all. And Mephibosheth will always eat at the king's table. You look at 2 Samuel 9 and focus in on verse 11. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said to the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth, once in exile, once an enemy, once recognizing his own spiritual poverty even given a a physical symbol of that spiritual poverty, is treated as a son, presumably with all the rights and privileges of a son of the king of Israel. Just as Hannah said, the Lord raises the poor from the dust. Mephibosheth has been lifted from the ash heap and made to sit with princes to inherit the seat of honor. It is really, really difficult to adequately express just how incredible this scene is. When we consider it, particularly in the context of the rest of 1 and 2 Samuel, here is the poor, destitute, broken enemy of the state raised to the glorious position of prince. As Hannah foretold, when the Lord exalts the horn of his anointed, in this case David, those who were hungry cease to hunger, and they shall always eat at the king's table. I want us to see, though, there's also a flip side of that reality, though. That is, cursed are those who are rich in spirit. I'm not going to spend too long here because it's not really the point of the passage, but, but follow this through with me. 
I bring it up because it's part of the function of this passage. This passage is actually meant to work in conjunction with another passage that's going to come up later. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. We saw that illustrated in Hannah. We saw it illustrated with Eli. And now we see it illustrated again. I want you to see this. Mephibosheth is raised from the ash heap. But there is another son who will be brought low. Mephibosheth is raised from the ash heap, but there's another son who will be brought low. And as we take up Mephibosheth, his story is so beautiful, isn't it? In and of itself, it's just marvelous. But, but when you see it working as it's meant to work in conjunction with the story of another son, the son by the name of Absalom, it becomes even more beautiful. Do you remember when we first met Saul back in 1 Samuel chapter 9? You remember how they described Saul? They described him this way in 1 Samuel 9 too. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. That's the description of Saul, right? The one the Lord had rejected in favor for his neighbor who's better than he. Now listen to this description that we first come and find in Absalom, who is David's son. 2 Samuel chapter 14 verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Do you see what's happening here? Isn't it fascinating? Here is the grandson of Saul who is echoing the words of David, I'm a dead dog. And here's the son of David being described a lot like Saul. It's almost as if bloodlines aren't just that great of indicators of blessing, right? Here's Absalom with Samson-like hair, right? He's a real looker, a regular Fabio, the type of guy adulterous Israel would easily be led astray to follow. And of course, that's exactly what we encounter when we get there. I just want to point out that part of the significance of the Mephibosheth event in chapter 9 is that it is part and parcel the message of First and Second Samuel when we see the Absalom event. The message is this. It's a great reversal. In fact, get used to that phrase. We'll be using it a lot as we finish out the book. We encounter this great reversal. The low will be exalted and the exalted will be made low. The fool will hire themselves out for bread, but the hungry will cease to hunger. The enemy, Mephibosheth, will be made a son, and the son, Absalom, will be made an enemy. The enemy, Absalom, will die hanging from a tree. The son, Mephibosheth, will always eat at the king's table. It's a great reversal. And it's everywhere in the scriptures. The question is, how does one who has ears respond to the great reversal? See, what this is, is it's a call to spiritual poverty. What a reminder this is that not by might shall man prevail. So, who will we trust in? I mean, here we are. It's it's the Lord's day. I mean, maybe you're weary, you're tired. I am. Listen, I know Sunday's the first day of the week, and in some ways it might feel like the end. But friends, if you've felt your spiritual disability this week, this word is for you. 
If you have felt how lame your feet are, how quick they are to chase after all sorts of things that your Lord has forbid, how slow they are to move towards all the things that your Lord has commanded, then this word is for you. If you, like me, know your head is full of crazy and your heart is full of twisted, that your eyes are dim, your ears are plugged, you have two left feet, then you need to double down and pay attention. The Lord has exceedingly good news for you. The poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt, blessed are you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they are blessed for the sake of another. That's actually in our passage. I want you to see this. This is actually the grounds of this great reversal. It's not the lameness of Mephibosheth's feet, but it's the faithfulness of Jonathan by which he's blessed. Did you notice that? This is the grounds of the great reversal. It's not the lameness of Mephibosheth's feet. It's the faithfulness of Jonathan. Look at the very first verse of our passage in 2 Samuel 9. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? You see, Mephibosheth is a recipient of the Hesed, the steadfast covenant love for the sake of Jonathan. Mephibosheth did not merit David's favor any more than David merited the Lord's favor. David's operating on the basis of a covenant established between David and Jonathan. And if you were able to read 1 Samuel before we started this, and maybe you've revisited a couple times, remember the, the very passage where that covenant between David and Jonathan is struck. Jonathan has committed fidelity to faithfulness with David, and he promised to find out what his father's intentions were. So they devise this little test together and and Saul's heart is revealed and Saul's heart is full of violence and anger. He has every single intention of killing David who he sees as a threat to his dynasty though the Lord has already rejected him as king. And so look at what we read in 1 Samuel 20 and 30 when Jonathan confronts Saul and Saul's heart is revealed. Look at what it says. It says, Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established nor your kingdom. Oh, I love this. You know why? You know what's fascinating about that? Saul here is relying on the might of men, doing everything he could to make sure that his kingdom did not fall. So what does he do? He blasts his son. Jonathan, don't you understand? If we don't get rid of David, you and I, we don't inherit the kingdom. Jonathan's response is, I don't care. I would rather have David than your kingdom. And now Saul loses the kingdom quite apart from anything that David does whatsoever. David's in exile when Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle against the Philistines. But here we are in 2 Samuel 9. And who is inheriting the seat of honor at the king's table? Who is actually inheriting the kingdom? It's Jonathan's son. I mean, I guess Saul was wrong, right? All who trust, whose trust was in the might of men will end in their shame. The shame that Saul claimed his son bore ended in his honor. 
don't miss the fact that Mephibosheth being raised to the seat of honor is actually an honor to Jonathan as well. These grounds, this covenant arrangement should be well understood by this point in the redemptive narrative as we come to 2 Samuel. Blessing is always bestowed on these grounds, by the way, throughout the scriptures. I think we lose sight of this sometimes. But Israel was told in no uncertain terms that God has said towards them, his steadfast love towards them was not due to them. But it was based on the sake of another. In the Old Testament, we see this fleshed out that it was on the sake of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here again, we're reminded that covenant blessing will not be achieved simply through our faithfulness. But it has been achieved through the faithfulness of another. If we're going to be blessed, if we're going to be the recipients of God's loving kindness, it will be grounded in the covenant not established by you and I. Not with our blind eyes and our lame feet. If God is going to call me his son, if he's going to prepare a a table for me in the presence of my enemy, it will be for the sake of another. It will be for the sake of the wisest man who ever lived, who declared these wise words for all who had ears to hear, and his name is Jesus Christ. For those of us who know that we are broke, who by God's grace have come to understand that we are deaf to God's word, we are blind to what is right, lame in our feet, and unwilling to walk in his ways, Jesus has made us to sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. I mean, on one hand, listen, it's a universal fact that everybody's poor in spirit. We know that. Everyone rejects the Lord as their king, leaving them utterly bankrupt. Our sin creates a debt that we can never pay. And that that wage is death. That death we deserve is an eternal existence of the divine wrath of the king that we've dishonored. So on one hand, yes, spiritual poverty is a spiritual reality. But when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's referring to those who are actually acknowledging their spiritual poverty. Jesus is referring to those who recognize that their spiritual feet are obeying their spiritual hearts, which are leading them away from the one and true living God. Being spiritually poor is recognizing that I'm exiled without any hope of drawing near to God in and of myself. It is recognizing that I'm a dead dog with no hope of being able to make myself alive and clean. Being spiritually poor is to mourn my broken, bankrupt condition to forsake any supposed strength or might that I might be tempted to to, to rest in or to trust in. And it's to hunger for an alien righteousness. In other words, friends, blessed are the poor in spirit because they know they can't save themselves. They rightly trust in a God who saves sinners, who raises up the poor from the dust, who lifts the needy from the ash heap to make us sit with princes and inherit seats of honor. Friends, know this. The great reversal begins not with the lowly being exalted, but hear this. The great reversal begins with the most exalted being laid low. Did you hear that? This great reversal, it begins not with the lowly being exalted, but with the most exalted in the history of exaltation being made low. See, what transpires here, it's just pointing forward. right? It's just preparing God's people, helping them understand that when their strength is gone, 
then God would act to vindicate his people. The Son of God, according to the Holy Scriptures in Philippians 2, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. The eternal Son of God did this. That's a great reversal. He entered into the world of concrete object lessons and identified with sinners. His earthly ministry did more than simply say, blessed are the poor in spirit. He illustrated it by touching the leper, bringing sight to the blind, healing to the sick, freeing the demon-possessed and forgiving sinners. He shared meals with tax collectors and sinners. And in the end, he died the death of Absalom. The son turned enemy so that you and I might receive the reward of Mephibosheth. Enemies turned sons. It was his great reversal from exaltation to humility, from author of life to recipient of our death that has brought our healing, causing us who are lame to leap for joy. He was brought back from exile and death to the right hand of the Father who has prepared a table for him in the presence of his enemies. We have been united to him by faith. His great reversal from death to life was our great reversal from death to life because by faith we're united to him. Now what? Now the Father loves us for his sake. All that was his is ours for his sake. Our trust is in him and he has brought us near. So it is that we, you and I, shall always eat at the king's table. I want to close this morning this way because I think there are two passages in the first gospel in Matthew that beautifully, and I mean just beautifully illustrate what's happening in 2 Samuel 9. I'd like to share those with you, if that's okay? Okay. Um, the first is in Matthew 8. I, I think, uh, just think about what we considered from 2 Samuel 9, the great reversal, the life of Mephibosheth, raised up from the ash heap to be made to sit with princes, to inherit a seat of honor. Just carry all that language of what we just examined and listen to this encounter between Jesus and the centurion. Listen to this. Matthew 8, 5 says this. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. I'm not worthy. Spiritual poverty. Only speak the word. Faith. Verse 9. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say this. I say to this one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. The great reversal. Verse 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. There are going to be a whole lot of Hannah's and Mephibosheth's in heaven. Verse 12, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. 
There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there will be a whole lot of Absaloms too. That's the first, but my favorite's actually in Matthew 15. I just can't get over this text. Jesus, he, he just finished this verbal combat with the Pharisees, right? If you remember, that concluded with the disciples coming up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, man, listen, take it easy. I, I, I think you're offending the Pharisees a little bit. Jesus teaches them that it's not what goes into the mouth that makes a person unclean, but what comes out of the heart. And he moves from that to what I really believe is, in Matthew 15, an object lesson of that truth. We're supposed to understand, after this, that he takes the disciples on a little field trip outside the promised land. We read in Matthew 15, verse 21 and 22, Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, Here is the Mephibosheth of Mephibosheths. Say that five times fast. A Canaanite woman, low on the totem pole already, but it gets worse. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. That's strike three. Canaanite woman with a demon-possessed daughter in that culture, you just don't get more spiritually impoverished than that. We might struggle just a little bit with that, with that whole physical disability, but surely if demon possession enters into the picture, we're going to start throwing some stones. <laughs> Saying, there's obviously something wrong with this woman. Get her out of here. She is unclean. But she continues, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter's severely demon possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him saying, send her away for she cries out after us. Now again, remember my understanding of this text is is Jesus is teaching the disciples. We're learning alongside the disciples. We are actually to take up the position of the disciples and understand what Jesus said to the Pharisees really does seem to offend them. And we're concerned about that because we want Jesus to talk nice to the Pharisees. But now there is this Mephibosheth of Mephibosheths, this Hannah of Hannahs, and we want Jesus to really let her have it. Get rid of her. That's the position of the disciples. Send her away, Jesus. She's driving us nuts. So that's exactly what he does here in verse 24. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Enough, he says. But wait for the spiritual poverty. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Can you feel it? There's a complete desperation there. She knows there is no place else she can go. No one else who can rescue her daughter. She has come to the only one who can satisfy her hunger. But but Jesus isn't done teaching the disciples yet. So he says in verse 26, But he answered and said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Hear that language there? Table, food, children... Dogs even make an appearance. It's, it's not right to take the food from the children and throw that food to Mephibosheth. And the disciples have to be like at this point, zing, oh my goodness, Jesus, man, you really got her. Yes, that'll put her in her place. Spiritual poverty. There's no place else to go. Verse 27, and she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Spiritual poverty. Then Jesus answered her. The great reversal. Jesus answered her and said to her, 
O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. You know that there are only two times in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus commends someone for their faith. You don't want to know what they are? Matthew 8 and Matthew 15. Matthew 8, the centurion, the second one's here. That's the great reversal. And friends, we would do well to model that posture. Here she is hearing from her Lord and Savior. She is brought in and made a daughter. Oh, how I wish we were taking Lord's Supper today. I'm so sorry I didn't plan that. You know why? Because we get to gather around the table. (laughs) You know that, right? I wish we could see this symbolized. We are low unless our God raises us up. Dust and ashes was our end, but he has made us to sit with princes and inherit seats of honor. We remember, though, that there is a day quickly approaching when this great reversal will be the final reversal. Where every cause of sin and all lawbreakers will be laid low in the dust and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess and the low will be raised up and we will reign with him forever. This is the story of the scriptures, folks. The eternal son of God came and took on our flesh. The most exalted became low. The great reversal. He lived a life that we could not live, a perfect life without blemish. And then he laid down his life, taking upon himself the death of Absalom, that we might receive the blessing of Mephibosheth. That's why this morning it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what addictions you've had, what struggles you faced, what trials and circumstances you've gone through in your life. The question is, have you been made spiritually low And do you recognize your great need? Do you recognize that there is no place else you can go but to King Jesus? And the beautiful thing is when we come to King Jesus, he provides rest for our weary souls by inviting us to come and sit at his table forevermore. Praise be to God for his great mercy and grace. Would you stand as we close together this morning? Gracious Father, what a provision, Father. Jesus really is the bread of life. And Father, we, your people, feast on him. Entrusting ourselves fully to his accomplished work. Knowing that we have been purchased by his precious blood. Knowing that all you've promised, you will do for his sake. Father, would you strengthen our faith and cause our love to abound? We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's sing this.